I think sounds pretty shocking to most people right now that we can do almost anything right now. Restaurants are open and movie theaters. Were these things ever closed? They were never closed, no. Why is Taiwan open while so much of the world is closed? American Amanda Mansoor will tell us about the remarkable way they've beaten back coronavirus. Step one, how they treat people who come in contact with it. The government will assign someone to call you several times a day to make sure that you're at home. They use your cell phone uh, location data to make sure that you're staying put. And if you're found to leave, there are enormous fines and also the threat of printing your name in the newspaper, which would bring, of course, great shame to you. Step two, how they treat everyone else. Now, the only people who are allowed to enter Taiwan are permanent residents. It is interesting, the contrast, though, in that that seems so extreme, and then the movie theaters are open. Well, the movie theaters are open because there's still no community spread. It's because they've been so rigorous that people are able to move about so freely. Hello from the front yard. I'm Brooke Silva-Braga. This is Ahead of the Curve. Today, we're going to take a look at Taiwan, which, if you think about it, should have had a really tough time with coronavirus. They have very close ties to China, which of course is where it started. And it arrived in Taiwan uh, right around Chinese New Year when there's uh, a lot of travel between the two places. They didn't have the benefit uh, that some places in the West did of getting to see it play out somewhere else and kind of know what's, what's coming up. Uh, no, they had all those disadvantages and yet remarkable success. On their very worst day, there were just 27 new cases. Uh, reported in Taiwan. And ironically, uh, part of their success may be because of that connection to China. China, of course, claims Taiwan as its own, and many Taiwanese uh, are very, very skeptical of anything that comes out of China. So when they, they heard this messaging uh, of a new illness from China and China downplaying it, uh, many in Taiwan assumed and prepared for the worst. Uh, what we'll hear today from Amanda Mansour, an American living in Taiwan, is the story of a very different response than what we've had uh, here in the U.S. Uh, two things uh, we should note as we head in. Uh, number one, Amanda is an employee of the U.S. government and a close family friend of yours truly. She speaks for herself, and she spoke to us uh, just about three weeks ago on April 7th, which, as Amanda will point out, uh, it's hard to even place Taiwan on a curve because their story has been so different, but in a very rough sense, that puts them then in the same place we are now. So we might as well just start with the, with the big question that I think is what people are so interested in, which is just the why. Why? Why did Taiwan seem to escape? So, um, you know, what we're seeing here is uh, a place that I think has a lot of experience dealing with the most similar possible phenomenon that I think one could have encountered in the you know most recent years. Uh, the Taiwan government essentially responded to this, what they believed was going to be a crisis in the way that they responded to um, the SARS epidemic a few years back. So um, what we saw was immediately before Chinese New Year, um, the population of Taiwan beginning to get instructions, not unlike what they were starting to get as SARS broke out. So, and it just reminds us of a, of of a couple of things. Number one, like when Chinese New Year fell, like where in the calendar was this? Yeah, so Chinese New Year was really early this year, which means that it was um, in kind of late. I think it was like the second to last week of January. Oh yeah. 
And for people who don't know, Chinese New Year is just an enormous movement of people. So they say that Chinese New Year is the largest migration in human history. It's like the number of people in the United States, Europe, Oceania, uh, and and South America all combined traveling within the same week of each other. So this is an enormous number of people all moving at once. And we and, have a contagious virus afoot. Right. So we started seeing checkpoints in the airports, um, checking people's temperatures, starting to ask people if they'd experienced certain symptoms. Um, and one of the first things the government also did, knowing that there was a, an enormous number of people coming back from travel all at the same time, was they extended the, the Lunar New Year um, school closure and break by two more weeks. What's strange, though, is that that sounds so similar to what other spots have done. So is it just about the timing? Is that if we're trying to see what was different, what was different is how quickly they did it? Yeah, they did it, I think, really, really early on. Um, in addition, as soon as they started to sense that um, people were becoming infected, they began a really aggressive testing regime. So um, they, you know, we would read in the newspaper that this is the number of people who were tested this week, that anybody who tested positive was immediately put in this kind of isolation, uh, low pressure chamber. They have these special facilities to house people. And then they would do these elaborate contact tracing exercises. So they would talk to people and find out um, who they came in contact with, how they came in contact with them. There's actually a lot of literature now available about um, the ways that Taiwan used big data to trace people's cell phone movements and all, and all different um, kinds of sort of high-tech tools to determine where people were. So we would also occasionally get cell phone messages that would say, if you were in X, Y, or Z spots during this week, um, please consider doing what they call um, health self-monitoring, which means that you should take your temperature twice a day. What What is the scene there? What can you do? What can't you do? So it, I think, sounds pretty shocking to most people right now that we can do almost anything right now. Um, almost all businesses are open. People are attending work in person. Uh, I think Taiwan is one of the only places in the world where schools are in session, in normal session. There was a, a prolonged closure, like I said, after people were coming back from Chinese New Year um, at the very end of January. But prolonged just a couple extra weeks. Yeah, two weeks. So the sense was that there's a two week incubation period. So it was just kind of a cooling off period, a period of gauging where things stood. But after that, things really opened back up. And I think people were worried that things would not open back up, but they did. The government has since then started very gradually tightening things a little bit because what's happened is um, since countries around the world have begun to experience the pandemic in more and more intense ways, um, Taiwanese people have begun to return from all over the world. Um, and with them, they have brought more and more what they call imported cases. So Early on, for the first few weeks, what we were seeing was maybe two or three new cases a day. And they would report every day how many new cases, how many people have been tested, how many people tested positive. Um, they have a rule here that in order to be allowed out of um, the out of a government quarantine, you need to test negative three times. Whoa. And once you're put on 
home quarantine, there are really strict measures. So um, the government or, will assign someone to call you several times a day to make sure that you're at home. They use your cell phone uh, location data to make sure that you're staying put. They ask you a couple times a day to give them a, a body temperature reading. And if you're found to leave, there are enormous fines and also the threat of printing your name in the newspaper, which would bring, of course, great shame to you. Uh, you were saying that slowly, slowly, like regulations are changing or tightening a little. I'm just curious yeah. how. So I'll give you some examples. So the government um, started to cancel first, and this was maybe um, um, three weeks ago, they started to cancel really large events. So there's an annual pilgrimage, like a religious pilgrimage that they canceled. Um, then they started to mandate that um, gatherings of more than 100 people outdoors or um, 50 people indoors should be basically canceled. Um, then they started to require that people, um, when riding the, the metro or the bus should wear a face mask. Uh, then they went from that to, even if you're outdoors, but in a fairly crowded space, you should still wear a mask. Um, and now even if you ride a taxi, you're required to wear a mask. People here wear masks a lot anyway. Um, during winter cold season, there's a sort of expectation that if you have a cold or if you have the flu or any kind of even allergy symptoms, that you wear a mask as a form of hygiene to protect other people. So it's not uncommon if you have a colleague who has a cold that they'll just wear a mask to work every day until they no longer have a cold. Even my son is in preschool and if he gets the sniffles, the teachers will put a mask on him and one day he wouldn't wear it and they made all the other kids wear a mask. Ooh, that's tough. But the kids will wear the masks? You couldn't get our kids to wear the mask. It's cultural. They're used to it. Everybody's doing it. So um, so initially, there was this huge panic buy, and everybody tried to buy all the masks because they heard that there was this new pneumonia going around. So the government immediately um, put this system in place in which each citizen is allowed to buy, I'm trying to remember how many, like three or five masks per member of household per week. Okay. And they have a central registry where, according to your health insurance number, you can go to the pharmacy and they track to make sure that you don't overbuy. But it ensures that there's enough for everybody um, and they're able to require them knowing that everyone has access to them. But restaurants are open. Bars are open. Restaurants are open and movie theaters... Um, Movie theaters, yes. Movie theaters open. You can go to the movies. You can go to the movies. They'll usually take your temperature. They'll spray your hands. Were they ever closed? Were these things ever closed? They were never closed. No. The only thing that closed was schools were closed. But other than that, everything else basically stayed open. They've also started to close in residential apartment buildings some of the um, common areas. They're trying to just discourage people from congregating in large groups. But people have kind of gotten the message. I mean, the government requirements at this point are almost gratuitous because people already feel like it's in their own interest to avoid crowded places. And there's no one really uses the term social distancing. That isn't a discussion that really took place here because I think people were instinctively staying away from each other and wearing masks. This is but exactly what I heard from South Korea, that this phrase social distancing was entirely imported from the West. All their success was before that messaging ever existed in South Korea, and now they're using these hashtags that have been popular here, but they kind of beat it back just with cultural norms, it almost sounded like. Yeah, I mean, there already are a lot of um, 
hand wash stations here. I mean, for example, there are public play centers that toddlers can go to. And every time you go into a public play center, they will sanitize your hands and take your temperature. Like even last year, I mean, anytime they do that. So there's already kind of a set of cultural norms around trying to keep people healthy and prevent the spread of cold and flu in the winter. So it's, it's just kind of like a super amped up version of what you're seeing a lot of the time anyway, Yeah, I think. So maybe we've just kind of answered my next question, but I'll still ask it to see if you have anything else. I, I'm curious if there are any other ways in which just like what you witness culturally and maybe governmentally or maybe just culturally there versus the other places you've lived, obviously in the U.S. and you've lived other places around the world. Does that seem like that's an important factor? Yeah, I think culturally, so Taiwan has almost no crime. It's a place where people follow rules. And so I think that one of the reasons that, um, you know, the kind of guidelines that the government put out were so effective is because people actually do them. People actually did them. I mean, every once in a while when I jaywalk, I just see the horrified look on people's faces. Um, and so I, th- I mean, there, I had this moment actually, this was very early on, um, maybe in early February, where I was really rushing to get home and I like jaywalked across the street and everybody on the other side was wearing a mask and waiting diligently. And I just thought this is my most American moment since yeah. I've been here. <laughs> I've always thought less of the places that don't jaywalk, but in a situation like this, you want to be the no jaywalking country. It's like the Northern European or Asian, the like, we follow the rules. And kind of, they're a little boring and uptight, I feel like, on the day-to-day. But when you get into a situation like this, this is kind of the culture you want, I think. I have never seen so many unattended iPhone 10s in my life as I have in Taiwan. (laughs) I, I take your point that it's not edgy to follow the rules all the time, but you really underestimate the pleasure of be of like um, freedom from crime and freedom from fear, right? This idea that there is yeah, I'm not pro crime. I'm not. I'm not. I've... No, no, no. But I. But it. But it's like um, the same attitude that makes people follow these rules is the reason that if money falls out of your pocket, someone will chase after you to make sure that you pick it up. You know. So it really is a like I said a really um, law abiding place. I would also say though that, you know. The government has been incredibly transparent about its response. The number of cases is printed every day. Uh, the availability of testing is um, something everybody's aware of. And as a result, I think people have been less prone to panic buying and to a more panicked response. And um, I think people are also less susceptible to rumors and to um, disinformation about miracle cures or you know self-tests or all these things because the people do have a pretty open um, relationship with the government and uh, it, it makes for a more orderly response to something like this I think. So here the framing is very much the idea of the curve it's even like I titled this thing curve it's like very much curve but there there doesn't really seem to be the same trajectory the gradient is very gentle on the curve here so i'm I'm curious about the language the language must be different because you're not trying to bend a curve like how how do do people talk about what we're trying to do and what stage we're in and how we're doing yeah so people don't talk about it in those terms like there's a beginning middle and end 
there's just a constant effort at prevention. And so far, people consider the prevention effort to be very successful, um, but they are constantly trying to be vigilant of protecting the efforts that they've already made at preventing. So, for example, Taiwan has had this kind of rolling, um, kind of gradual uh, set of travel restrictions. So initially, they banned people coming from the sort of epicenters in China, right? So no one from Wuhan could come. Then they banned Japan and Korea, then Italy, then Iran. And then slowly, slowly, they continued to ban people coming from more and more countries as outbreaks happened in those countries until now the only people who are allowed to enter Taiwan are people with Taiwanese nationality or um, people who are permanent residents. No one else can come to Taiwan. They've essentially closed their borders to everybody else. It is interesting, the contrast, though, in that that seems so extreme. And then the movie theaters are open. It is like a different... The movie theaters are open because there's still no community spread. It's because they've been so rigorous that people are able to move about so freely. Given all that, how do people talk about the timetable? If there isn't like some narrative of beginning, middle and end, how do we know when the end is? Yeah, I don't, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I don't think people really talk about it in those terms. They see that swirling around them is this crisis. People feel like they're just trying to ride out what's going on all around the world. And yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I've never really heard anybody talk about be, being over the hump or when this is over. I think there's just a sense that they have to wait for everybody else to get with the program. But that here, it's, yeah, it's pretty flat. Um, well, good for you guys. We're jealous. Um, any, anything else? Yeah. Anything else about this? You know, like I said, people are, there's this big culture of face masks here. And I spend a lot of time explaining, because people keep asking, why aren't there any face masks in the United States? Why is this, why is there a shortage? And I keep explaining, in the United States, they're not called face masks, they're called surgical masks, because they're really only worn by surgeons. And the only time I've ever bought like an N95 mask is when I did a home improvement project. That's how I have one. I was, I was doing sanding. So I ended up with, with a couple. Otherwise, I'd never even, I don't know if I'd ever touch one. Right, right, exactly. So um, I, I didn't live here before SARS, but I think part of the prevalence of mask wearing here came from that experience. And I wonder if um, other places in the world are going to adopt this practice. Like, what do you think are the elements of this crisis that are going to continue after it's over? That's such a, I, I don't have like great answers on that. I'm, I'm so of two minds of it. I, with a lot of things, I really think people are eager and enthusiastic about snapping back to normal. Yeah. But I do think there's also going to be like a scar element, especially for certain people in certain ways where they will, yeah. they like won't want to shake hands or hug anymore. I mean, is this the time to eliminate the handshake? I hope Just not. Like... I hope not. I mean, we've survived for like centuries handshaking. How will I assert my dominance over people before meetings if we eliminate the handshake <laughs> is what I want to know. I trust that you'll find a way. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think that's a really, really interesting topic, especially if this goes on much longer and it is truly like a global trauma. Yeah, it's it feels really singular. I mean, if you think about 
some of the fundamental societal changes in the United States just from something like 9-11, which happened in only one city, but really changed the collective consciousness in a way that I think was kind of tangible. Like something like this has to have some kind of impact like that, I would think. I think so. Yeah. What What is it? But I don't know the answer. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, Taiwan is uh, probably the best place I could possibly be right now. So um, I'm going to just keep using our building's gym until they close it down, which we think is going to be any day. But in the meantime... That's encouragement to go each day. You never know. It could be your last day. This is literally my longest consecutive streak of gym visits since I've been living in Taiwan because I keep feeling like each one is my last day. Do it while you can. Yeah. Really, really making it count. (laughs) Taiwan uh, continues to count their cases, mostly in the single digits. No major resurgence there. I meant to find out about uh, whether Amanda's gym is still open. Uh, I didn't ask her in time. But when I hear, if I hear from her, I will post it in the comments or whatever the description. Uh, Next week, uh, an interview that we recorded all the way uh, back in March with uh, a man in Shanghai who's going to talk about what China was like at pretty much the stage we're now uh, entering in the U.S. It's It's a pretty interesting comparison. I hope you'll tune in next week for that. Until then, rate, review, subscribe. I remembered them all. Have a good week.